1: who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community, as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. Imagine being the
0: sort of person who can have an impact on a global scale, particularly thinking about the way in which we could do things differently. Polly Ransom is just that person. She's the founder and CEO of Emergent. She's been named as one of Australia's 100 most influential women. She's delivered a peace charter to the Dalai Lama. She's interviewed Barack Obama and a whole bunch of other significant leaders. She's written a book on leadership. She's been awarded awards. She's done a Master of Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School. She's even the youngest ever female director of an AFL club, Port Adelaide. And I'd be impressed if I knew anything about AFL. I'm sure. What I'm really, really interested in is talking to somebody who is authentic, who is dynamic, who is personable and who is having a real impact throughout the world. I'm excited. I can't wait.
1: Let's go. Phil, I'm super excited today for uh, our guest on series five of the Game Changers podcast. But before we get to the, the the wonderful and dynamic Holly, I don't know, did you get my gift in the mail from Amazon? I sent you a raincoat and an umbrella there, Phil, because I understand that Sydney weather is a little atrocious right now.
0: Yeah, you forgot the gumboots, mate. So I'm right. sitting here at the moment in Wallara and I'm up to my ankles, but you know, I, I appreciated the thought, so so thanks very much. How's Sunshine West treating you Sunshine's
1: great, and I just don't, I don't want to hear any more jokes about Melbourne and our rain. That's all from you people in Sydney. I don't want to hear about it anymore. Fine. Okay. you done? Yes, I am. Uh, As I said from the top of the show, I'm super excited to finally be able to sit down with our good friend, Holly Ransom. Holly, I'm going to launch directly into the very first question. And it's a question that we ask every single one of our Game Changer guests. And that is, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today?
2: Well, Phil, Adriano, thank you so much for having me as part of the Game Changers podcast. I'm thrilled to be here with you. And I just think it's fantastic. Fantastic, what you're trying to shake up and create uh, through this podcast and through your, your broader portfolio of work. So wonderful to be involved and to be part of such a, a great Game Changers community, knowing quite a few of your, your guests that you've already featured and, and some that are still to come as well. Uh, when it comes to my story, I think probably, and it's funny, I, I, it's timely that we're having this conversation today because my grandmother turned 90 years old yesterday. Oh, wow. And I think for me, uh, she's probably the most significant influence in shaping who I am and really lighting the fire in my belly to want to do something in the world. My earliest memory, it's sort of funny how some things stick in, in your brain, was shopping with her when uh, we grew up in Perth, for those who know Perth well, it was in Scarborough. We were at a shopping centre. Uh, we'd run down. We had She was babysitting us for the day and had to make lunch for my brothers and I. And um, we were standing in the queue to go to check out at the, the supermarket. And there was this guy who, at age four or five from my end, looked like a giant. He was enormous. He was six foot something. And he was absolutely ripping into this poor young girl that was on the checkout who'd evidently given him the wrong change. And before I knew it, my like barely four foot grandmother, Dorothy, had gone and inserted herself between this six foot giant and this poor um, young girl, put her finger up at this man and said, how dare you talk to that young lady like that? You apologize. And I just remember watching this giant stop in his tracks, be completely startled for a moment, kind of mumble, sorry, grab his things and rush out of the store. And my grandma thought nothing of it. She paid for her bread and the milk and whatever and started making her way out of the shops before she realised I wasn't holding her hand anymore. I was still kind of fixed back in line, staring at all of this unfolding. And I just remember saying to her, grandma, that was so brave. And she turned to me and I don't forget, she said, honey, if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. And I didn't realise for a very long time what a gift that was to be given as a young person, both in terms of my grandmother. I guess, inviting me into the responsibility that comes that we've been born into privilege in a country like Australia, where we are so fortunate and so lucky in so many respects, and that is not equally distributed. And so there is a responsibility each and every one of us has to make sure that we don't walk past things that are unacceptable. But I also think what was great about at least how I interpreted what grandma did in that moment was you didn't have to know the answer. You just need to be prepared not to stop. Like you need to be prepared to stop and not walk past it. And I think mm. for me, that was really pivotal too. It was just that preparedness to go, I don't need to know how to solve it in that moment, but I need to go at that moment and go start asking questions and do my best to work out how. And I think that lit the fire that sort of inspired everything really that I've done since then. So I owe an awful lot to my my grandmother.
0: And Holly, you've done an extraordinary amount of things since there. You are intimidatingly accomplished in everything hey, that you generous. do, uh, I I don't think so. Actually, I think it's I think it's just real. I, I, but I, I kind of want to f- start, if I can, by flipping it around the other way, mm-hmm. which is to look at the idea of adversity in your life and to look at the idea of failure in your mm-hmm. life, because it would be very easy for our game changer listeners out there at the moment to go, "My goodness, I couldn't possibly do all the things that Holly's done," and yet I'm willing to bet that there's stuff there which you've learned from from stuff that you haven't. Mm-hmm didn't come so easily. What role has failure and adversity played in the shaping of your character and the shaping of your competency?
2: Oh, an, an enormous amount, as I think it does with, with everyone. I think we we truly learn our most powerful, often probably because they are the most painful lessons or they're the most um, significant because of the the circumstances we're confronting them in when it comes to failure and adversity. And I think for me, when I think about those kind of crucible moments that have really shaped me and who I am, probably the the biggest one was being diagnosed with depression um, back in 2015. You know, I was one of those people that grew up in a household where we didn't really talk about emotion. We just got on and did it. I had always been able to kind of push through, find a way, uh, probably at this stage of my early 20s, I would pride myself on just you know how much I could cram into a day and get done and this and that and the other. And that all works till it doesn't, right? And uh, it really hit a wall big time for me. Um, You know, it was quite extraordinary reflecting on that period. It's still kind of a fog, large parts of it, to be honest, in my memory bank. But I look back at it as probably one of the most significant and important moments in my life. And I'm so grateful, as weird as it sounds to, to say this, that that happened. Because I think what it did for me was revealed how unsustainably I was living, working and leading, you know, both in terms of the the lack of regard I was putting on my own self-care mm-hmm. on the way I was, I guess, making choices about what I was doing and who I was doing it with according to what other people wanted or expected from me as opposed to what really was congruent for me with what I wanted to be doing. Probably gave me a sense that maybe some of the people in my life weren't the people that I should be doing life with. And so I made some really powerful and profound changes there. And it forced me to go deep, in an introspective sense and work out what am I about, what do I stand for and what changes am I prepared to make with my life uh, as a result? And so for me, the recovery, and I'm very fortunate saying, I want to be very clear, everyone's experience with mental health is very different and you know I don't want to in any way characterize mine as the, the example that everyone has or the experience everyone has. But for me, I'm very fortunate that the way that I dealt with that was to really take the time to, get the new support structures, new systems, new mindsets, new ways of working and thinking in place that have allowed me to really say that that's been in the rearview mirror ever since. But without question, the kind of things that that characterised or brought to the surface me in that moment have fundamentally changed the trajectory of my life for the better. And I wouldn't be where I am and as happy in life as I am right now and fulfilled if it weren't for that really challenging period I went through there.
0: Holly, thank you for sharing that. That's right up there in, you know in terms of setting the tone of of what we want to talk about, because that authenticity is 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 so important and it shines through in everything you do and in the way in which you interact with people. The mental health stuff is real. We know uh, that in countries like Australia, that by the time students are 18, one in two will have had a clinical episode of mental health upset or, 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 or disability in their life, that at any one point in time in a classroom of 25 students, there are five students in front of you at any point in time who've either just gone through, are about to go through, or are in the middle of such an episode. So dealing with mental health is not a side issue. It's mainstream, and it's part of the journey. I think of all of us, rather than just something that gets hidden on the side. You've given us a, a, an extraordinarily powerful case study there in sustainability, in recognising that the way in which you have to construct your life um, has to be done on principles that are, are sensible and are sound. And you know, you, you've got to build values and and and, then, and and then construct a way of being that makes sense. That's a little microcosm of sustainability in our world today. And clearly, the whole issue of sustainability, it goes well beyond, you know, saving trees and saving particular species of animals and, and, and so on to broader considerations of being people-in-place and planet-conscious. That's one of the big megatrends are shaping our new world environment today. What are the other ones that really we can't ignore, especially those confronting and, uh, and challenging and um, inspiring people in education?
2: Yeah, look, and just to pick up on a couple of the threads of the, the mental health piece that I think you touched on so um, wonderfully eloquently there, I think you're absolutely right. And probably we've never had the degree of consciousness about mental health that we have done since we've been through the pandemic. And you no, know, everyone's experienced that in different ways, but whether it's grief and loss, whether it's job loss, whether it's the challenges of homeschooling and living situations and the various pressures that people have felt under, I think it's raised to a public consciousness that the mental health challenge Um, As it has done with a number of other issues, you know, it's created a a level of dialogue around things like domestic violence, for example, that arguably hadn't been, you know, as as public um, and and to the degree of breadth, maybe of the coverage, you know, a community who are engaged in that issue knew about it, but probably not more broadly than that. And I think the same goes for mental health. So I think one of the biggest things, you know, with a lot of these things in, in terms of climate change, whether we're talking about, you know, the public health challenge we're going through at the moment, the mental health challenge. There's this this piece, I think, for me around going from the ideation or the acknowledgement, I often think we almost get caught in what I call problem admiration, which is the ability to consider a problem from, you know, 100 different angles, which is important because we need to understand it. But moving from problem admiration into action and experimentation in trying to solve and come up with uh, ways of combating things, I think is absolutely critical. You know, when it comes to educators, I think probably one of the, the biggest conversations that I've been involved in for the last six, seven years uh, and that supercharged with everything we've been through in the pandemic is the future of work. And I think we've got to find a better word for, or phrase for that because the future is already here. Mm-hmm. Um, as the, and we're late. We, we are late. That's yeah. it. I mean, as they often say, the future's already here. It's just not equally or evenly distributed. So mm-hmm. we're, people are engaging with it in different ways. But what we know is the pandemic dramatically accelerated technological disruption, mm-hmm. you know, by, they estimate, you know, depending on what report you read, somewhere between two and five years and depending on what part of the world you live in. So I think there's an enormous challenge on two fronts. You know, one is preparing uh, with the skills for the future economy and making sure people are ready in a kind of technical capacity set. And then as Adriano and I, having had the privilege of working with him for some time now, are quite passionate about, it also gets to the heart of the pedagogy of how we teach and how we learn, because a big part of it is creating this mindset and this habit set around being a lifelong learner and what that means it's getting comfortable being uncomfortable and being able to be a beginner and try new things and have a go because the thing that we know about what the future looks like is the pace of change we're experiencing now which we're all overwhelmed by to some varying shape and degree is the slowest pace of change we're going to face moving forward this is the new normal that we've got to get used to and so part of that is the actual way we've got to learn to work and think and lead and operate. And then part of that is in the rapidly changing kind of skills and and kind of setup of our economy that's going to actually allow people to find work or apply their, their trade, their craft in whatever way, shape or form. So I think when it comes to talking to an audience of educators, it's hard to go past that as a huge conversation.
1: And it's such a significant one, you know, because I get a sense that there are many humans that are genuinely scared that they'll be replaced by robots. But the interesting thing about that is that we're still teaching kids like their machines, you know, in this in this kind of very outdated, antiquated industrial model. And, and you know, in order to successfully develop the kinds of learning ecosystems that, that we all three believe will enable young people to flourish in their world, we kind of have to move away from the thinking that the end game in everything in school is a standardised bloody test. It frustrates me <laughs> to no end, you know, and... What you are talking about today, Holly, is precisely the type of change I believe we need to measure in schools and in society. We need to move to measures like values, inclusion, measurements around character and wellness and empathy. Can you imagine a kid one day coming home and saying to mum or dad, oh, I wasn't happy with my empathy mark today? (laughs) You know, imagine a world like that, though. Imagine what that could look like, you know, not just about what they've learned about, about photosynthesis or algebra. Those things are important. I get it. But, you know, people have this capacity to imagine and build things of intrinsic worth and and positive worth. And unlike robots, this is the advantage we have, right, that we can manage between the black and white and we can interrogate knowledge and we can apply it situationally. But the thing that's most unique about us as humans, I believe, is our capacity to take responsibility, to mobilise kind of our cognition and the social emotional resources uh, to do something that is of benefit to society. Basically, you know who I am and how how I serve need to become kind of the central constructs of learning today for tomorrow's world. So much of your advocacy in the time that you have been in in the public eye has been around that piece I just mentioned, and that is contributing to the growth of society as a whole. Mm. You're a huge advocate for uh, women and their inclusion but also diversity beyond just women, particularly young people. Why why is that important to you? Why is women's voice and agency, why is young people's voice and agency so important to Holly Ransom?
2: If I can pick up on uh, part of your question before sure. I answer that part, you, you just immediately brought to mind in what you're talking about, someone I've been very fortunate with to work across uh, my career with a couple of times, which is Sir Ken Robinson. Many of you will know him as the person who, um, spoke the the brilliantly popular, I think still the most popular TED Talk of all it time, is, yeah. Skills Schools um, Kill Creativity. And I think one of the things that was so incredible about, about Sir Ken was the way that he challenged exactly what you're talking about there, Adriano. Like if what we measure matters, then are we really measuring the right things? And what are we kind of, you know creating in terms of um the culture that our young people are growing up with this is what they believe matters this is what believes success is judged by this is how um, the competitive environment they're in all that sort of thing and it just made me think of a quote that that he um would say he said our, our believe our only hope for the future and this is going to be slightly paraphrasing and forgive me for not getting this right is to adopt a new concept of human ecology where we start to reconstitute our conception of the richness of human capacity He goes, our education system has mined our minds in the way that we have stripped mined the earth for a particular commodity. And we have to rethink the fundamental principles with which we are educating our children. And I just think him more than anyone, if you're not familiar with his work, his books, his talks, he is such an inspiration to me in the way that he has pushed um, for change through our educational system. And I was so deeply saddened by the fact the world lost him last year. And I think particularly now um, there's a need for all educators out there and everyone who's passionate about the way that our world is being led moving forward to pick up this work and run with it. Because we Mm -hmm. desperately need these sort of conversations infiltrating uh, decision making rooms in all aspects of society, not just in education, Mm -hmm. Um, but in in making sure that we're, we're thinking about this in every aspect of culture. To get to your specific question, Adriano, I think when it comes to diversity and inclusion, and, and this is something I know you're passionate about with what you're doing at Game Changers, every bit of data that we can see says that diverse decisions do better. You know, yeah. whether we're looking at corporate success, whether we're looking at the way that it impacts culture, we're looking at, to touch on something we've already spoken about, mental health and well-being and the sense of inclusion um, and just the way that that flows through people's psychological and physical health. We know this has a, a really powerful impact So part of it is getting the diversity in the room. The other part, and this is the thing I think we're going to believe, I believe is going to be a big part, certainly, of the corporate conversation, and it'll be interesting to see how it imbues educational conversations in the next decade as well, is not just the diversity of who's in the room, but then the inclusiveness of the processes, the structure of the dialogue, the way that we think through decisions, and make sure those diverse voices are included. Because the thing that Professor Amy Edmondson's work out of Harvard tells us is if we've got a homogenous team versus a diverse team, a homogenous team is going to outperform the diverse one unless there's psychological safety. So until we make sure that diversity feels safe to show up, speak up and contribute in the diverse manner that we brought them to the table for, then we're not going to realise the benefit. And for me, it's really important if we... If we want to change things as they're done right now, and I believe I'm probably talking to an audience with your podcast that believe in the importance of that, the definition of insanity is thinking we can get the same people in the room and it's going to come up with a fundamentally different solution that's going to lead to better outcomes in a new and imaginative way that's transformative for people who are right now uh, excluded from power and prosperity. So we need to be bringing different and diverse voices into conversations.
1: What's really heartening for me and i'm sure our listeners is that we're not just listening to someone who is talking a big game on diversity and inclusion we're actually talking to an individual who lives it every single day you are the i believe the youngest female director of an afl football club and you've headed over there to port adelaide uh, you know, the enemy. <laughs> hey, now, now. You're uh, <laughs> not the Crows. No, well, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, they did have Eddie, Eddie at bets for a while, the Crows. So I've got, I'm slightly partial, you know, because Eddie's a, a legend of the Comfortable Club. So in 2016, you became that young, the youngest director. And it was an important opportunity, not just for yourself, but the game. And since that time, we've actually seen the game of AFL grow exponentially when it comes to AFLW. I'm interested to know the impact that a female director has on the psychology culture of an organisation that was very male-dominated once before, and we're seeing increasingly uh, that shift. We saw the success of the Richmond Football Club with with a very strong female lead in in that place. I don't think it's by accident that so much of their culture is inclusive. They have an amazing indigenous program as well. Uh, they, they have a program that really acknowledges women in, in a very pronounced way, and of course they've, they've got now an AFLW club as, as well. So, can you maybe share with our listeners a little bit what that what does that change look like and that impact look like on an industry that for probably a hundred plus years was male dominated?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and it's been a really interesting case study in diversity and inclusion. And I pay tribute to the leaders, uh, both female, Sam Mostens and Linda Dessau's of the world, who really broke ground as the first AFL female commissioners, but also the male leaders in the game. Like when I think about my own journey in the AFL system, uh I have to pay tribute to David Koch and the phenomenal chairman he is at the Port Adelaide Football Club. He's continually challenging us to be better in every respect Mm -hmm. and he believes inextricably linked to better is diversity. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's no surprises to me that we have three female directors on our board now. We have Mm -hmm. an Indigenous director. You know, we've really been... And as well, he'll say to you, it's not just about that. It's about generational diversity. I want diversity of thinking. So it came from an environment where... um, it wasn't just about making sure that we had diversity to tick a box and appease kind of the, you know, I think the increasing uh, public desire to see at least um, a female, if not more than a female on a board, but really to make sure that there was meaningful engagement and that you were empowered in a way to contribute to the club. So I've chaired our, our welfare people and culture work since I joined the board. And that's been a really great vehicle with the work that I do to be able to positively. We shape the club and work with the phenomenal leaders that we've got to prepare for the AFLW bid that we're putting in at the moment to think about how we strengthen our culture to create you know an inclusive environment for everyone. How do we do a better job of understanding millennial athletes and their well-being needs to pick up on something we've talked about before. It's really different to the way that previous generations thought about mental health and well-being. It's quite countercultural in a lot of ways to what was instilled in previous environments. So I think it's, you know, and I feel really, like, honestly, our, our club is is such a um, a welcoming place in that regard. And I love the the health of the debate and the quality of the, the different perspectives that come in around the table. Um, and I think it is unsurprising that you've seen as we've now got two female presidents within the AFL at Richmond and the Bulldogs. We've probably got every club having at least, I would, I would think by now, two female directors. So we're probably between 35, 40 female directors across the AFL. It does make a difference, you know. Peggy O'Neill mm. tells stories of when she would, uh, when she first joined the board at Richmond. And it was sort of two of them around a dinner table. You know, the fact now mm-hmm. that we can take over a whole restaurant is is a really encouraging sign mm-hmm. of kind of the growth of the female voice within the game. And we know females are a huge part of the AFL fan base. We know yeah. they're an, a huge part of the participation base, and it's growing at great, great rates. It's extraordinary what AFLW has done.
0: Holly, it's really interesting hearing you talk about taking that step from intention mm-hmm. to action through your leadership in AFL football. And one of these days, you might actually teach me <laughs> something about that game. Apparently, apparently, it's quite important culturally to a whole lot of folk around, around where, where we live. What I'm interested in, you are, you are very clearly a student of leadership. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're a student of human behaviour, full stop, and of human potential. You're a student of leadership, and you've just written a new book, which is you know, going to be out in July. It's called The Leading Edge, Dream Big, Spark Change, and Become the Leader the World Needs You to Be, available in all good bookshops, <laughs> and everybody should go out and buy 40 copies and give it to all of their friends. I'm interested in what you're learning about true leadership, and in particularly, um, if we talk about a world that is disruptive, or a world that needs disruption, or a world in which stability is no longer the norm. What are the trays of leadership that are emerging in your mind that really successful leaders seem to have? We're going to dig a little bit deeper in the next few questions about about this whole notion of leadership. So let's just start, if you like, with sort of the personality trays mm-hmm. that leaders have.
2: Uh, great question. And it's been fascinating going on this learning adventure in writing this book. What I really wanted to do, uh, and it will again probably resonate with your listeners that it started from a premise that the way that we're leading like how we've touched on the way that we're teaching uh, is still more often than not broken but there are wonderful points of light scattered all over the world and they leave a trail of breadcrumbs that we can pick up and follow and that can lead us um, to new levels of success uh, with different approaches different different methodologies, different ways of doing things so what I really wanted to do was consolidate those points of light and at the same time One of the things that is interesting and probably unsurprising when you think about it is that when you go and do the literature review on leadership, it is overwhelmingly from the perspective of privileged white men, more often military generals, you know, Navy SEALs, elite sport coaches or kind of Fortune 100 CEOs. And so it was just lacking as well a discussion of leadership that had a difference of perspectives of socioeconomic backgrounds of cultural backgrounds of sexual orientation of gender you know whichever way you wanted to cut diversity I wanted this book to really shake up that and offer a kaleidoscope of perspectives on leadership um, so that everyone could find their their angle and weigh in I think some of the common traits amongst those diverse um, stories was without question, something you even touched on in the premise of your question here, insatiable curiosity. These people are interested. They are in pursuit of a truth or an answer or an understanding or something, but they are driven fundamentally to get to the the bottom of a problem and to to find a way forward. And, And they, in approaching that insatiable curiosity, have a really wide lens for who they can learn from and where they can learn and i love that they're not people who think one dimensionally about learning they're not people who think it all has to happen in a classroom they're not people that think it has to only come from a certain type of person who's above them in a hierarchy they learn from everyone and everything and they particularly learn from people who are experiencing firsthand whatever the situational circumstances that they're trying to lead so i think that was one really really obvious trait that came through the second big thing was courage All these people have been bold enough to have a go at doing something different, whether that was owning their truth, whether that was stepping out and um, establishing a new business, whether or not that was speaking out against injustice or whether or not that was crusading in a particular new direction to pioneer progress. They've all been courageous enough to step out of the status quo and to have a go at doing something differently. So I think curiosity and courage are probably the two common traits. And then the third would be an adaptiveness. More often than not, in fact, every time in in my research, it didn't work first go. Nobody landed the bullseye with the first attempt. So it was that preparedness to try, pivot, go again, try, pivot, go again. And, you know, kind of linked into that is that ability to keep getting up, you know, that resilience to go again, and to not let that, I guess, blinker the way that you're thinking about what your next step might be. So to not get kind of too wedded to the way that you wanted to approach it and have, again, in that moment, the openness. OK, didn't work this time. What have I learned? Where do I go next? Those would be the three big things I think I've noticed amongst the leaders I've I've featured.
0: Yeah, and, the, and that that last one in particular, that, that speaks to the sort of adaptive expertise and self-efficacy that, that's sort of emerging again and again and again as in our research, as the thing that stands people apart in terms of their own personal preparation for leadership and then the success that they have. You know, and there are lots of different words for it that are, that are thrown, out, thrown around, but you know, it's essentially the willingness to go on a journey and, and never stop going on that journey and, and to keep learning along the way. One of the things that we've found with talking with amazing people like you who are extending in every direction to think about what might happen with that curiosity and that courage and that adaptive expertise that you spoke of just then? They never seem to stop.
2: So I want to ask,
0: I want to ask you, when do you stop?
2: I was not good at stopping earlier in my life, and I have become good at stopping, uh, at, better at stopping. I don't know if I ever. Uh, I think good has too much like. Uh, of a sense of even judging how effective you are at stopping. So I like, I've become better. I think it's something you continually re- re-evaluating. Um, and I think there have been a couple of things that have helped me do that. One... and I I hope people don't have to do it the way I did it because I advise you to get it right versus getting it really wrong and then reprogramming yourself like I did Um, but I think one of the things that really fundamentally helped me and I write about it in the book but it's inspired by the work of the guys who wrote The Power of Full Engagement was starting to manage my life according to energy instead of time so that was a really fundamental swap in my brain you know and I think a lot of people are still on the hamster wheel of busyness where it's how many things can I fit into my day and if it's full with meetings from 8am till 8pm, then that's success. You know, that is a pathway to burning out pretty quickly, but it is one that I think, you know, is still lauded in the world of uh, business and leadership where we kind of wear busyness as a badge of honour. So I think Mm. one of the big things was shifting that, checking in with myself and going, you know, when am I at my best? What should I be using those parts of my day for? We've all got natural rhythms. So where I don't ever look at email first thing in the morning because I'm in a creative headspace, I'm full of energy, I want to be applying that to new ideas or making things happen or coming up with plans or in conversation with people, advancing ideas, so that's really important. What do I know I need in every day to be at my energetic best? You know, for me, that's exercising, you know, so it's not something that fits in at the end of the day if I've still got time for it. It's a fundamental building block of how I design my weeks and how I think through structuring of my day. So that's been a big one. I think the other amazing influence has been my partner. I mean, we're really good for each other in making sure work doesn't come home. We work really hard during the working day, but we don't work weekends. We really try and safeguard that time for quality time together. We have dinner together every night with no devices. Holly, I don't even recognise
1: you anymore. What you don't do any work on the weekend? Who who is this person I'm talking to? (laughs)
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Because I could just. Sorry for butting in. Because I could just remember really distinctively when you when we had the really good fortune of of, of having you uh, present to our student leaders at my previous school yep. you spoke about you know that year that you had 365 5 day activity and every day you had a different activity and it, the boys just left that conversation going you know Mrs. the product like is that for real i'm going clearly it's for real you know and we saw you you know how you mapped it out and and we saw this this dynamic young woman who was very driven to be better than she was yesterday mm-hmm you know, um, but I'm so glad uh, that your wellness and that of your partners and and, and the people that are significant in your life is now a significant part of your continual formation going forward.
2: And I think what you've touched on, Adriano, is learning and appreciating and then applying the distinction between working hard and working smart. Yeah. And there is a degree to which the two of them walk the same journey, but they very clearly fork at the road and, and deviate. And I think what I've learned over the last little while is how to work smart for me. And Mm -hmm. and that's another really important thing. Everyone's working smart looks different. Mm-hmm. But working that out and continually recalibrating that for yourself, I think is is one of the most powerful personal check-ins you can just keep continuously on top of.
0: Um, Holly, it's interesting hearing you talking about this because some and again, excuse me being a nerd around all this sort of stuff, but I just I, I love this sort of interaction of, of sort of trying to and, and the way in which we can try and tease out specific competencies that people can use to help them, think about what they might be doing better. And, and what you're talking about here is the emotional self-regulation to identify and take control of the way that you spend time. There are two things that when you talk to chalkies, when you talk to teachers,
2: chalkies, I like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I, look, I'm, I, I love the term chalkies. There are others who get offended by it, but I don't care. Um, but, the asthmatics. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Thanks. Thanks to Prado Um, I think one of the, there are two things that 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 when you talk to chalkies, they will tell you time and time again. And the first one is time, and they'll they'll say, "I need more time," and they'll. They need help to reframe I need more time to, I need to choose how I spend and when I spend my time. That's the first thing. Only. Totally. And 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 your answer is very good around that in terms of giving us sort of advice around that. I want to take you to a second place, which worries mm-hmm. lots and lots of teachers, and it's very, very specific. I would do X, Y, and Z, but I'm worried about the backlash from parents. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So teachers by nature tend not to be the sort of people who enjoy the cut and thrust and repartee of a more cutthroat business world. They're warm, they're relational, they love harmony, and they really don't like conflict very much. And Mm -hmm. so when they come up against people and they're worried about um, an adverse reaction, they'll shy away from that. How can we help um, teachers, how do we help educators to have the courage to step into a potential conflict situation and then manage it in a way that is going to lead to constructive outcomes?
2: That's a great question and I've been really fortunate. I absolutely love working with schools and educators and I've had the great privilege of doing so a lot over the last decade and it's something that comes up regularly Um, and I feel this pressure and I feel for uh, for principals and teachers, because I say, yeah, you know, that's great, but you you, you be here on Monday morning when so and so comes knocking on my door and you know wants to tell me why little Johnny or Susie should have got an A plus instead of a B, or why this is the the worst idea they've heard of, or whatever it might be. I think there's there's two really important things. One that I've come to appreciate is that parents and teachers have an overlapping common driver, and that is. Um, safety and stability of the people that they care about most. One of the things I love about teachers is almost universally, um, you'll hear in their answer of why did you get into teaching? Because I I love students. I'm passionate about shaping the next generation. Some answer to do with, I care passionately about the people that sit in my classroom every day. And that's a beautiful overlap with parents who care passionately about the young person they've sat to, sent to sit in your classroom on any given day. And I think the thing we've got to understand there is there's a kind of common language around stability and certainty. The last thing a parent ever wants to think is that their child's a guinea pig and that anything that's going on is risking their child's future, their safety, their happiness, anything like that. So one of the things I've worked with a lot of educators on is when we're talking about a new idea or changing something up, what's the way that we can communicate it to parents in a language that hits on that driver? So, for example, when uh, I've worked with some educators who've been doing some very progressive, innovative work in education, I'll say to them, you know, is there a way of demonstrating data that this is not the first time that this has been done? Actually, this is really well-established trend. You can see from all these pilots and all this success that this is how this works. Or can we talk to them about the fact that it's actually the way that we're doing things right now that is of declining resonance and um, relevance? And so, actually, if we don't change, we're actually putting your you know the young people more generally we're 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 prepare, potentially not preparing them for the future as well as we could be so there's some way of basically utilizing the way that we're communicating hitting on that certainty and safety driver that's common actually amongst teachers and and parents i think the second thing is thinking through how you manage your own energy in heading into conflict you know and and that involves a variety of different strategies conflict's kind of inevitable in any environment where we're working with other people We don't serve ourselves by sweeping under the rug and just let it accumulate and get bigger. But it doesn't mean that makes it easy to deal with. Like nobody nobody I know actually really loves conflict and they probably wouldn't be in any kind of teaching profession to your point if they did. So we've got to think about is there a colleague I can rehearse how to have these tough conversations with so I can make it a little bit more comfortable? Is there something I can put pre and post the tough conversation I know I've got to have? to put myself in the best possible state to have it and to kind of decompress, like, you know, take the charge out or something afterwards or recover quickly and improve kind of my bounce back rate. So I think there's little things like that where we can think about both how we communicate. So we take down or we mitigate against the likelihood that we're going to get extreme backlash. And then the second piece is how do I manage my own energy when I'm heading into a situation that I know drains me? or is not good for my like general state of energy. And so they're probably the two things I, I would suggest as strategies certainly that I use and that I've used a lot working with educators that have been helpful in this regard.
1: I think that's really powerful to share, particularly for our, our school leaders that are out there and, and new people to education, you know, graduates, to really understand that parents are fundamentally the primary educators of their children. And, and we have the privilege of supporting them in the growth and achievement of their son or their daughter. And it's interesting, only recently the Australian National University published their nationwide poll where they asked parents and carers the question around what should and should not schools be responsible for when it comes to their children. 67% said that they want to ensure that students develop personal values and attributes like respect, honesty, and empathy. 65% said, They want to provide additional resources and support for students with disabilities. And 63% spoke around the notion of ensuring students have a sense of self-worth, self-awareness and personal identity, enabling them to manage their own wellness. It's really interesting that those things that I just shared with you are all about the human qualities of the young people in which we serve and in which we support. And yes, 82% 82% are still focused on literacy and numeracy. No problem about that. I've got no issue with that. That's probably because, you know, we have a, a media that is, is infatuated with back to basics and, and sound bites from politicians that keep throwing that out there. So no doubt that's why it's always at the top in terms of what parents feel is a responsibility to schools. But so much of it is human-centred. You've been fortunate enough in your journey to work with and learn from heads of countries, companies, charities, people like Susan Kane, Condoleezza Rice, to Barack Obama, to, to one of our favourites, Malcolm Gladwell. I was very envious that you had that opportunity. Yes, me too, me too, me too. <laughs> and, 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 and during those encounters, when I when I watched those conversations, I encountered individuals that are deeply human-centred, that are really in tune with our inherent humanness and why that needs to be the key value proposition moving forward in an age of artificial intelligence and machine learning and so on. To complement that, from what I've learned in your conversations with these individuals that I've watched and listened to, you also concluded that there were three principles that now feature in your book. And those three principles are mindset, method, and mastery. So what did you learn from them about leading others?
2: Gosh, that that I could go for hours on this and try <laughs> to think about how to give a succinct answer to that question. That's why it took me writing a whole book to try and get most of it down, sure. um, but I think, so I mean, the book's broken into two parts. So probably one of the, the first observations that I've made and the reason the book is structured the way that it's it's done, part one's all about self, because until we can lead ourselves, we can't lead others. And that's probably one of the first really distinctive observations about some of the people you've just listed there, is they've done the work on themselves to understand themselves, to get to the place where they, they know their distinct contribution, they've identified their values, they, they understand their purpose and the difference they wanna try and make in the world and they're working at that. And then the second part is all around, you know, how do we lead others? And across both, we have mindsets, methods and mastery. So what's the way we get our own mindset right when we're thinking about self? What are the way we apply our mindsets, our talents, our skills to actually achieve outcomes, make sure the rubber hits the road? And then finally, kind of what are those habits that continue to allow us to improve and reach the next stages of growth? So what are those things that kind of allow us to start realising that next level potential, but are also those engines of continuous improvement? And then again, similarly applied across kind of leading cultures, teams, systems, we talk about it at a macro level, we talk about it at a kind of micro organisational level. So, so many observations, I think, across all those categories from those leaders you just touched on. But I agree with what you've said outright that they ultimately come from a place of caring about something that's much bigger than them. They care about other people. They care about the way that other people are in the world and in their own way they're trying to either illuminate a particular part of that challenge we don't think, they don't think we're talking about enough, or um, they're trying to work at solving part of that particular challenge or both. You know, there are some instances, you know, we've got great thought leaders who are really, doing a brilliant job of writing and raising awareness and bringing the perspectives of people we don't often enough hear from to to bear and others who are at the foreground of trying to pioneer better ways of doing things, better social outputs and impact, the like. But I think it all comes from that place of being about something much bigger than themselves. And it's amazing when you talk to them how, how, self-generating, you can see that that is. That's continually the thing that gets them up, It gets them past the adversity, the criticism, the mm-hmm. setbacks, the challenges. That's that's the engine that keeps them going.
1: Listening to that response to my question, uh, I pick up two fundamental things in what you just shared uh, so eloquently. And the first is that one of the key aspects of leading others is first, we need to attend to ourselves and our own self actualization And once we understand that why, kind of our true north so to speak we're in a better position to then lead others and ultimately we would hope that as humans once we we are we are on this road and this this continual journey of self-actualization we then can give so much more to the others for the benefit of of a a broader society and, and the growth of you know a human endeavor i want to finish with this particular question before i hand it over to phil I heard this quote recently, and I can't I can't believe I didn't write down the author's name of this quote. I'm kicking myself now, but I'm sure someone out there will, will tweet it afterwards. And it was, if you do not have a North Star, perhaps you limit your vision. I've always thought that knowing having a North Star isn't about a destination, that it's about a shi- shining a bright light and, and a direction to moving forward and up. Uh, and it's kind of this kind of powerful symbol of aspiration and our possibility. What's Holly Ransom's North Star? <laughs>
2: Without a question, it's about helping others to be able to realise being the change that they want to see in the world, whether that's at an individual level, whether that's at a cultural level inside organisations, whether it's at a community level or a country level. You know, they're the projects I'm passionate about. They're the leaders and individuals I want to be working with. Um, And so for me, it's about doing what I can to uh, share that learning, to be able to work with building systems, processes, structures, new ways of doing things that can actually help us realise that potential. Um, but that that's without a doubt my North Star. And I like the point that you make around the fluidity of the approach to that, because one of the things I often say is that I've got a strong sense of direction, but a very loose hold of the reins. Mm. And I think that's really important because you can close the off to opportunity, you cannot be alive to the dynamism of the circumstances in the world around you that requires you to continually be thinking about you know, the way to keep adapting to Maintain relevance to make sure it's achieving, you know, the results that you're after. But without a doubt, that's that's the driving north star. Don't walk past it and try and encourage others not to do the same. And when people stop, let's work out how we beat the change we want to see in the world.
0: Hi, Ransom. We um, we like to think of 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 competency as about the way we know, the way we do our dispositions and our being, and 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 the way in which we learn. You are such an exemplar of a holistic and integrated way to do this. You're giving us lots and lots of ways to think about the world we live in now, the world we're going to live in, and how to get there. We're very, very grateful for you joining us today on Game Changers, and we wish you all the best with your endeavours, and we look forward to your continuing friendship over time. Don't forget, um, everybody, Holly's book, which is The Leading Edge, Dream Big, Spark Change and Become the Leader of the World, needs you to be available everywhere. Uh, it's, I said buy 40 copies. No, buy 100 copies. <laughs> <laughs> Give it to all your staff. Give it yeah. to all your staff.
2: <laughs> Please do. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. There are plenty of principals out there who are looking for books for their faculty um, to do as a sort of a collaborative reading project. Um, this is a great one it's a brilliant one written by one of the smartest people out there who really knows her stuff so thank you very much for being with us today Holly.
2: Thank you for having me and look if we get that level of interest from the school community I'd be really happy to do a special kind of educators conversation with you guys live where we talk through the application of some of the book Ah. to education specifically and and the cultures we're creating in schools so let's see if we can get that community started and I'd be really happy to have that conversation.
1: No, that's awesome. And Holly, finally for me, thank you very much for your time. You know, I always love my encounters with you. You are so generous with your with your depth of knowledge and your lived experiences and that when you do become the Prime Minister of Australia and I because I'm going to be voting for you and, and campaigning for you, just remember that diversity is also about intergenerational. I'll be a bit older then, and I'll, I'll be looking for a bit of employment. And I'm very quite happy to to be uh,
0: and Carlton will still be looking that. for a win. At yeah, that Carlton will at still be looking for
1: a win. So you'll have you to feel look, sorry
0: you're for me. Dropping
2: football knowledge. There you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, you take well, care. We wish you the best going forward.
2: Thank you so much, everyone.
0: The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions. It's powered by a schoolfortomorrow.com and circle.education. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify and on Google. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, subscribe, like, you know what to do. Let's go.